Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Oh, Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Razzle Dazzle Rioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. Timberwolf. From inside the centre square. whatever time of day it is, everyone. I'm Ethan Castle, and this is episode number 105 of Americans Watching the Footy. Benjamin, do you know what that means? Uh, We're 33 away from our spectacular. I mean, among other things, yeah. I was just going to say that it means that it's our our 105th episode, but that too. I'm coming to you once again from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Don't forget, I'm on the road this week. Seems like, from what I can tell, sound quality is still decent, I hope. Yeah, let's uh, let's hope that holds. I'm still here in South San Francisco, California, alongside my nephew, Grind Harabe, the footy cat. He's currently at his normal spot in the windowsill. So we're going to accomplish a couple different things in this episode here. We've got our progress reports for the Cats and Sons because they're the two clubs on buys this round. And then we had a really fun time kind of rating the Sir Doug Nichols round jumpers last year, just talking jumpers in general. So we'll be doing that in the second half of this episode because i mean otherwise just to be really short and we just have two really short episodes instead of one moderately short one all right so only two kind of progress report capsule thingies to go over for this round let's get started with i guess the only time we're going to use the uh randomizer this episode yeah um get the wheel out of the way with early i guess if it's even that um, or we could even just, like, I don't know, flip a coin or, I, I, I don't know, do something. We want the ball, we're going to score. Yes. I'd like to see someone do that with the coin toss with footy. And then Al Harris comes out of nowhere and picks them off, too. Yes. We're going to start with the Gold Coast Suns. All right. As I mentioned, as we were wrapping up our breakdown of the Suns win over the Crows in Darwin, they are perfectly balanced right now. Yes, they're in 12th, but, you know, that's kind of wonky with... Some clubs having already had their buys and also just the bottom being solo this year, but they are perfectly balanced in terms of being six and six and at exactly 100%, 991 points for and against. And that in itself is beautiful. People are really impressed with the Suns the last few weeks, considering that they've won five out of their last seven. And on top of that, the two losses are Q-Clash, which we can kind of always pencil in as a loss for them, and a game against the Ds, where other than the first few minutes, they played really well and only lost by five. So it seems like people are starting to drink the Capri Sun. I'm still a little hesitant. I was expecting them to lift in Darwin, but they beat a couple quality opponents up there. And, you know, I wasn't exactly expecting them to rise to the challenge so well with Tuke Miller being out. We still don't have a timetable on Miller's injury recovery. It's a knee injury that seems to still be somewhat serious if he's remaining out to this point. But Noah Anderson and Matt Rowell have been leading the way. Rowell has just decided I'll take every contest and win almost every single one of them too. I think that's even better than winning Wipeout and having fun doing it. If Australians don't know that soundbite, they'll be introduced to it. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, supplemental pieces there, Raider Fiorini's had steadier game time. Rory Atkins has been going to move the ball from the defensive 50 to the wing as he's reemerged had a more visible game against his old side this past week in Adelaide and we'll see if Ben Long can keep up a more physical tagging job because he did that really well against Isaac Rankin and I certainly did not expect that Jack Lukosius has been on fire and he's taken the team to some new heights couple of five-goal performances now it was funny because the first couple of weeks he looked so bad he had that game Round two against Essendon, where he just looked like completely uninterested in playing. And you look at what he's done since then. It's pretty incredible. He's finally got a steadier spot as a forward, able to use his long kicking ability in that sense. And 
it's working for him, providing, you know, still a somewhat tall option, but not as, you know, lumbering as someone like Ben King or Levi Casbolt or Mavio Chol when he's in. So they're diversifying their forward targets a bit. Bailey Humphrey has been a revelation as well. Pick six, just 10 games in, and oh, well, he already signed a four-year extension. So he's locked up through 2028. And, you know, maybe in a few years when you see, like, the, you know, redrafting 2022, maybe you see him moved up a bit. The first few weeks, you know, he was getting his feet wet at the AFL level, was pretty much spending the whole game in the forward third and wasn't getting as many touches because of that. We've seen his full oval capabilities the past couple weeks. Defensively, it seems like making Sam Collins the main intercept defender has really helped things settle in. Well, Collins and Charlie Ballard, who I identified as having been really important for a while. And, you know, I wouldn't have thought of him as a sleeper in many other clubs, but I did because, I mean, who, when they fought on the Gold Coast Suns before this year, would immediately think of someone like Ballard. But he tied the intercept mark record against the West Coast Eagles and has been a strong one-on-one defender week in and week out. Collins and Ballard, one of them has shown most weeks, and Ballard tends to get more of the marks because Collins is more eager to spoil, it seems. I like my sleeper pick, Charlie Constable. I mean, the former cat. Their VFL team's 9-1. He's only played two games at the AFL level this year. Got a lot of touches in those. 26 against Sydney and 19 against Essendon. I remember people talking about him as this big fantasy riser, and then he got dropped. I mean, some of their list decisions have been weird. The the weirdest one of all has been Mobby Orchol kind of being in the doghouse. But it does. It seems to be working lately. And then you were surprised about Joel Jeffrey being switched to half back. And I mean, as was I, when I the first thing I think of when it comes to Joel Jeffrey is that five goal performance that he had out in Ballarat last year, including the goal over his head. But he's settled in at half back and proved himself this past week against the Crows. Yeah, seems to have that more physical mark at that at that spot on the ground because your halfbacks don't tend to have that sort of muscle mass to them. Yeah, this seems to be working. The thing is, I think this is a similar trajectory to where they were last year. And that's the one reason I'm not like getting really excited about this being, you know, a finals contender. Like that's why you're not drinking the Capri Sun. I mean, I'll drink a little of it, but like you look at their season last year. Weren't they six and six after twelve rounds? They were six and six at the bye. And then they went four and ten afterwards, including a couple of really tight losses. You know, kind of gut-wrenching losses. And then, yes, they did beat Richmond after the siren, but that didn't end up really generating any momentum because they lost the next two. If this wasn't the exact same trajectory they had been on last year, I'd be much more excited about this because I think this version of the Suns is better than last year. That Sunday afternoon game coming out of the bye against the Blues looks awfully juicy now. Looking at their schedule coming out of the bye, they've got some tricky ones. Obviously, hosting Collingwood is tough. At Port, hosting the Saints can be really interesting. No easy game against GWS, although the Giants can't win in Canberra, it seems. Trips to the Adelaide Oval and SCG. And Bloodstone Arena. The Suns seem to be getting more attention than they did at this time last year, even though I see where they are as quite similar. It's like, I want to believe. I really, really want to believe. I want to believe it too, but I don't. I don't see this as a finals team for this year. I want to think that they've done enough that, that Stuart Jew is safe for this offseason with some of the stuff we've seen from the younger end of the list. But if they end up with nearly an identical ledger to last year, maybe they'll be more keen on making a splash for the big name on the market. I think they can draw people in and win people over, honestly. You know, if there is one thing to to say about about Stewart too at this point is that he is starting to get some of the out of state players on the list to commit. Humphrey being among them. I don't know if he's great tactically, but you can tell he builds like a really deep emotional connection with his players, and that's a good sign. The culture, like players, clearly like playing for him, and that's half the battle, if not more than half. But I'm gonna need to see something more in order to believe that they're going to be a finalist. Like, I look at their remaining schedule, I see a possibility of them getting to 12 wins and being right on the brink, but I'm not really going to believe until, like, if they beat Collingwood or finally win a Q Clash or maybe win at Port, 
Oh, yeah, they've yet to win at the Adelaide Oval. Some history to watch there for round uh, 16. I remember us last year talking about the Suns being a year away from being a year away. It does feel like they're a year away if that now, if Tooth Miller can be healthy. And, you know, elsewhere on the list, the injury list appears to be pretty clean after the bye. They're going to get Connor Butterick back at last. Sean Levins and Lockie Weller will return from their shorter-term injuries. So the list is going to be pretty full. And with the strength in the reserves, the pressure is there too. I just, this season seems so similar to last year, and that's why it's hard for me to get excited. Again, show me something different from last year, and I'm all the way in. Because I like this team. I thought this team, you know, isn't that far off. But, like, it seems like kind of a rerun of last year in a lot of ways. Well, this is certainly not a rerun of last year for the Cats. I mean, yes, they did start off last year pretty shakily, but they only had four losses all of 2022, and they already have six. Their percentage is in a nice spot, though. 118.9 puts them at the top of that 6-6 six six group. All right, I'm going to give a very concise summary of things because if there's one thing that I am when talking about my club, it is concise. If you told me at the start of the year that they'd be 6-6, six and six, looking at the remaining schedule, I would not be happy. But if you told me what they'd have to go through injury-wise, I'd say, all right. And so far this season, in a lot of ways, has kind of fit with one of my favorite references from Impractical Jokers, where this season has kind of gone, what? Oh, hell no. Wait, hold up. Huh? Oh, okay. You know, the first three games are the what? Oh, hell no. Then the five-game winning streak is the, wait, hold up. Then three more losses is the, huh. And then beating the Bulldogs to go into the bye despite having, like, no midfield is the, oh, okay. And now you're about to get Jack Bowes, Patrick Dangerfield, Mitch Duncan, and Max Holmes back after the bye. So, like, whatever Max did to his meniscus must have been pretty minor. Uh, There are longer-term injuries to be dealt with for Cam Guthrie, who was pretty bad at the start of the year and then was starting to turn a corner before he got hurt. And Reese Stanley, who is not a great Ruckman, but he offers... Not John Seglar. He offers the very important skill of keeping John Seglar out of the lineup. I mean, not right now with his face being busted. Yeah, there's stuff about like him having vision problems. I'm not sure what all the details are there, but... We don't have a... A great timeline for Stanley. It sounds like Cam Guthrie, though, is likely out until finals if they get there. I, I think, you know, there's a chance maybe in the last couple rounds for Guthrie, but the win over the Bulldogs is the first time that I've really seen, you know, a win that I'm like super fired up after. Yes, beating the Crows was a good win over an informed team, but to do this on the road, missing the guys that you're missing was huge. You look at what this lineup looks like versus what you want a healthy lineup to look like and that they've managed to piece things together is honestly really impressive. Um, Jeremy Cameron got off to an insane start this year, has cooled off some, but is still probably the best forward in the competition. Tom Stewart's one of the best defenders, if not the best. I believe he's the best. Put him right up there alongside Darcy Moore and Cal Wilkie at this point this season, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, Moore's been great this year, but I think like, Long term, if you look at overall body of work, it would be hard to go against Stewart. Also, Tom Stewart kicked a goal this past round. That was his first in over five years. As if the Cats didn't need another energizer to get themselves going at the start of the fourth quarter when things were already turning their way. Yeah, I was super impressed by the way Chris Scott responded to the lack of depth in the midfield against one of the deepest of the competition against the Bulldogs, just ensuring that Players from all three sections of the ground, regardless of where the ball was, were going back and supporting that they made sure to have decent numbers at any spot on the ground. That's the way to make up for, you know, deficits in in a certain area, particularly in the midfield. And then it's nice for a guy like Mitch Nevitt to emerge, too. Now, I fail to understand why they didn't employ a similar game plan against GWS. I think they learned. Nevitt has been an enormous positive, and I think like the most unexpected positive, even though I picked him as my sleeper pick just because there weren't really many. Other guy that I obviously really enjoy, and I was just saying this on our prior episode, was Oshin Mullen, who like 
is still very new to the sport and is still learning. Like he doesn't know when there's a guy breathing down his neck because he just hasn't had the time to develop those instincts. But just naturally, he's unbelievably talented. And I'm not sure how much of it is a coincidence, but Zach Tui went from looking washed to playing pretty well with him, you know, the moment Mullen came in. I don't know how much of that's correlation, but it definitely helped. Uh, Mark O'Connor, speaking of Irish dudes, has been really solid all year. I'm trying to think of who's been, like, disappointing of the guys that have been healthy. I mean, Tom Atkins has really been hit or miss. I think when he's on, this team is really hard to beat, and he was damn good this past game against the Dogs. I think of Atkins and Rowan as the joint barometers for this Cavs squad. We would, we talked on here and also uh, online with guys like uh, John Roberts saying how, you know, Gary Rowan has huge impact with minimal touches of the ball. And his stats of, you know, winning when kicking two goals, they did improve again. They lost their first two games when Rowan kicked two goals because it was the first couple rounds. But uh, they fixed that against the Dogs. I guess the last couple of weeks, Zach Guthrie's regressed a little bit. I still like him overall. Uh, Tui at times this year has been frustrating. Jed Buse has been a bit quiet this year. Sam DeConing clearly is not the same wearing this mask, so hopefully he doesn't need it coming out of the bye, or he's just more comfortable playing with it. I would assume he won't need it anymore, I hope, because he's been way less physical and it's obviously impeding his vision. Uh, He hasn't been quite up to the level he was last year. Like, the defense has been solid, but not world-class. If we could see more games like what Jake Kolejashny gave the other night, I'll feel really good because... I mean, last year, the defense was fucking incredible. They gave up 100 points once all year, which they've already done four times this year, although the one against Essendon, you know, there's a lot of garbage time points conceded. So I'm not too worried about that one. But they gave up 100 to Collingwood. They gave up 100 to Richmond. They gave up 100 to Frio. And coming out of the bye, the schedule is an absolute bitch. Like, yes, obviously getting some guys back will be really nice. But they got to jump right back in, go to court, and it does not get easier from there at all. Yeah, you got the D's at home, at Sydney. Then you get North and Essendon, who they've done very well against recently, both at home. But then at Brisbane, home against Frio, home against Port, at Collingwood, at St. Kilda, who I wouldn't be surprised if they've fallen off by then, and then they finish up with the Dogs. So outside of North, who's you know playing better football these last couple of weeks, it's... It's going to be extremely unforgiving, but I mean, that's kind of part of the tax you pay in exchange for winning a flag. So I'm not complaining about that. I have a lot of things to complain about, and a difficult schedule is not one of them. How have we gone this far without talking about the namesake of your cat, Brian Myers? He's been the best assist machine that we know him to be. Yeah, which is funny because that was never his game up until this year. I mean, you saw it a bit at the end of last season, I'd say, once he was able to slide into that that spot of the field where we see him now. It's been a really interesting couple of years for him. You know, injured some in 2021. It was alongside the emergence of Tyson Stengel that he started seeing Myers playing more in the center and half-forward groups and starting to be more of that link and that assist man. And that's that has always made sense as a spot for him because he's a pretty accurate field kick, even with, you know... Everybody questioning his technique, his unique kicking style, because we had to say that. And that didn't used to be the case, is the funny thing. Like, he didn't have a lot of confidence in that. And I didn't want to see him kick in the middle of the field at all. I just wanted him to handball everything. And he's still a very accurate handball as well, which was going to be my next point. He's also fast, and despite being undersized, a really good tackler. He's leading the way with 20 assists. And you've got Petraka at 19, Tom Hawkins at 17. Just the funny thing is, you know, Hawkins has 32 goals. Petraka has 11, and there's Grian with two. He also has nine behinds, and he could, he's probably been robbed of at least like three or four more assists by teammates not being able to finish. I would love to see, you know, somebody with one of the expected score uh, metrics to have like an expected assist metric to go alongside that. Like use the expected score from, you know, what, where the kick is on the spot on the ground to like have an expected assist tally. My position, you know, I don't think back-to-back flags are likely, but I think it's still doable. I don't feel as confident in that as I did, say, at the start of the season. 
But I'll give you this. I think this team is the most likely, if you told me someone that, you know, will not finish in the top four, but win the flag. I think this is the team to do it. I think you could say that about the dogs because you never expect them to be in the top four. And they did it before. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, any other team that finishes outside of the top four that's currently really a flag contender, they probably would have to play pretty poorly at some point to do that. Whereas Geelong can do a lot of things really well and pick up some good wins and still, because of this schedule and the position they put themselves in, finish outside of the top four. And that's why I think they're the most likely. I mean, you know, if, you know, I guess Frio or someone, it's possible. And I think, you know, I'm not sure if the Cats will be able to keep up with the Brisbane's and Collingwood's. But I think I don't see any other team that could conceivably be outside of the, the top four and have a legitimate chance to go out and win four finals. I think this team could. Obviously, you would have to go through Collingwood. Not going to be easy, but it's it's not out of the question. Other things to go over. Um, Brendan Parfit's been the biggest disappointment this season. It sucks because I loved his play last year. He has just not been it. He hasn't been able to really use much speed or physicality or, fuck, anything really. I'm wondering yeah. if, there's, if there was some some tentativeness after he had one of his hand injuries to attack the ball in the same way. Because I know that his hand had been bothering him for at least the early part of the season that we hadn't seen since, you know, a game where he was playing through one of those hand injuries. I mean, he wasn't even good before that. I don't know if it's just a confidence thing or what it is, because I think he's got as much talent as anybody. That premiership medal should give him all the confidence in the world. Even if he just came on as the sub and it wasn't really for an injury. Here's the other thing that I've been thinking about. In part because of these injuries, I am more optimistic about the state of the 2024 Cats and beyond than I was at the start of this year. Is it because you've seen the depth? And that, and that you know, the, the depth is in an okay spot? Or, I mean, obviously, you know, we can't go off the, the VFL results because of how many guys need to be called up. Yes, like Mitch Nevitt passes the eye test. Jai Clark, in the brief stint he got, looked pretty solid. O'Sheen Mullen, sky's the limit with him. Like, there are teams that I will take in their current form over Geelong, for sure. But, like, if you ask me, you know, over the next, like, six or so years, would you take the Cats or, like, Brisbane or Melbourne? It's pretty hard to say no to what Geelong's doing. And even as some guys are going to get older and age out, I know Tom Stewart's in the contract year. I'd be shocked if he doesn't stay. Maybe there's a chance Chris Scott decides, like, I've done this for long enough, and hopefully they'd have a good succession plan in place if that's the case. But, like, knowing this team's ability to get free agents and get guys through trades and that it's a club people want to play for, and seeing the young core, I'm really encouraged. I'd be shocked if things really go to shit and we have, you know, a bunch of seasons where this club is just irrelevant. They're going to get a Darcy this offseason. I'd love to get two of them. I'd take one. I'd love two. Okay. Sean Darcy is a restricted free agent after next year. But uh, yeah, Darcy Parrish is up for grabs. He's a Geelong kid. I know he's not the most physical player, but just a midfielder who gets a bunch of possessions is one of the things that this team could really use. It would be like an instant fix. So that would be that would be great. Yeah, it's someone who could be even it's someone who could be, you know, valuable on the defensive side to help bridge the gap between to help bridge the gap as Mitch Duncan uh ages out. Because I mean, you've seen how much the cats have struggled without Duncan over the past few years. They hadn't won without him this year until this past round. My mood, like my outlook on the season completely changed off of that one game. And I think it's warranted because they hadn't won one like this between the guys they were missing and going on the road, even if it's not like a difficult trip, per se. And even if it was maybe like a 50-50 crowd, it didn't necessarily feel like an away game, but it was one. It was not on a field with silly dimensions because, you know, Cardinia Park's kind of silly. The misshapen wing is very silly. At least it actually has a wing, Norwood. And maybe... I mean, Norwood, both games there were really good, so maybe there's something to that. Oh, I should mention, by the way, my uh, my sleeper pick. It was Cooper White. I had noticed him in the preseason action, 
and he was a sub in round one, but hasn't gotten on the field since. And it's you know hard to go off some of the VFL form because that side has been inconsistent, and the players who have elevated themselves above White have been elevated at the AFL level. So if this team gets healthier, we'll be able to get a better read on the twos, and from there I'll be able to have a more complete evaluation of White. It is ironic, I mentioned this before, you know, couple of guys who left for more playing time. Francis Evans and Cooper Stevens. Turns out they probably would have had that playing time. Francis Evans still undefeated. He has lost VFL games, but not AFL. It would be really funny if the Cats were the one to change that. It would be really funny if Port don't select him again, and that's why they lose. It's like, you know, calls the touchdown play. All right, we're going to take our break now and then get into the Sir Doug Nichols round jumper rankings. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome back. A reminder that you can follow us outside of whatever podcast platform on which you're listening this. We are both on Twitter and YouTube at Americans Footy. You'll, you'll see our live reactions to the games along with other footy takes throughout the week there. You might also see some footy content on our personal Twitter accounts. I'm at BenjaminHK01. I am at Castle Media. Brian Harambe is on Instagram at cat named Brian. And right now he's just patrolling the room. He's gotten down from the windowsill and is acting like a guard cat. All right, welcome to our 2023 Sir Doug Nichols round uniform rankings, or Americans try to pronounce indigenous Australian words. I've taken some care to, to look some of these up, so hopefully I'll, I'll take some of these right. Maybe you'll be able to lean on me for this. Please yeah. understand. We're trying. And also, please understand, you know, this is an aesthetic thing for us. We love these jumpers for the stories they tell, the meetings they have to the players and the artists. And, you know, this is why we're doing this. And even, you know, the jumpers that we have at the at the bottom of these rankings, they are still very good jumpers. And we and we like a lot of them. It's hard to see some of these, you know, ranked so low with how good they looked on the oval. The best thing about all of them is that they actually work unlike, you know, special event uniforms in like any other sport. Like Major League Baseball is the biggest culprit. Camo stuff for the troops. Baby blue for Father's Day. Pink for Mother's Day. Yeah, it's honestly the pink. Uh, the pink bats are badass, by the way. But like everything else, though. Yeah, like American teams or 90 percent of these Nike City Connect jerseys that are just fucking garbage or City Edition for the NBA. It's. So it's some of those are actually good. Some, some of them are straight garbage. So Baltimore, believe it or not, at the Orioles Giants game on Sunday, I saw one person wearing an Orioles City Connect jersey. I wanted to go up to them and simply ask why. Um, do you have any sort of criteria that you used to rank these? Because I don't have like a math system for it necessarily, but I have a few things that I was looking for. Yeah, I mean. Obviously, I took care to look at both how it looks off the oval and on the oval. I mean, these can't just be fashion jumpers where they only look good outside of a playing context. I'm thinking, for example, like the uh, the Frio stealth jumper that they had in the Gather round. where in game you could actually hardly see the purple V's. I thought that one still at least looked kind of good on, on the field, but I, I didn't. My, Especially as the game wore on. My criteria for this. A cool design, you know, whether it's symmetrical or like a pattern that makes sense, such as a sash or stripes or something. Um, you need to be able to recognize what team it is right away, which I think just about all of them check that off, which is really nice because like if sometimes, you know, in a few years, like I'm going to see baseball highlights and I, I'm not going to be able to tell what one of the teams is because some of these jerseys just like don't match the color scheme or identity at all. And then I personally enjoyed the ones that were able to kind of utilize either the regular design or like the regular logo or the team nickname or mascot. 
Yeah. So in that sense, our in that sense, our criteria are somewhat aligned. I, I took into account, you know, some of the stories behind the jumpers going through each team's page about the design. And yes, obviously bonus points for being able to incorporate the mascot so well. There are some the the top two that that we had last year, by the way, both did those exceptionally well. Um go back and look at the Adelaide and North Melbourne jumpers from the Sir Doug Nichols round last year. The Adelaide jumper designed by Pat Caruso with the full body crow and Kaya Nicholson Ward's uh, three kangaroos jumper for North. Those are top notch. This year, personally, I really liked about nine of them, 10 of them maybe. And then I think there's a bit of a drop off, but again, none of these are bad. And like, if no, I, I just randomly wear these for any other game, I will not be opposed because they work and they look cool. Yeah, and only one completely rehashed design for this year, too, which is actually, since we're going to just give you these rankings from our least favorite to our favorite, that's the one that we're going to give you first, because we both ranked Sydney as our least favorite. The Swans Jumper was created by Lua Pellegrini, a We're a Jury artist. I'm a bit put off by this one, mainly because of the addition of light blue. I mean, of course, I understand the circles representing all the indigenous players connecting each other and the importance of water as, as you know a connecting path through through rivers and, and oceans and you know the importance to the, to the coast of sydney but you had the black swan and if there was one indigenous design that i would have liked to, to have seen kept forever it was that one also the 19 circles for the club's 19 indigenous players one of which is elijah taylor I mean, yeah, we're going into a little bit of touchy territory here. Obviously, you know, we could talk about, you know, people could raise a point about Taron Thomas being represented on the North Jumper in that way then. Yeah, but, you know, he's not a current player in this case. I, I'd i like to see a new one next year that brings back the Black Swan. The other thing is on the Swans one, I guess maybe the the kind of opera house design might be a little harder to make out as more of a background element. Not sure what you think about that, Ethan. I don't know. I think you can go without the opera house element when you're doing the indigenous jumper, but I do generally like it. Uh, at number 17, I've got, uh, so we aggregated our rankings. I have Collingwood at 17, Benjamin Hess at 16. It was done by Jab Warong and Karai Warong artist Tarni Jarvis. It's just really similar to the regular jumper, and I would have liked more of a deviation. Like, the design is fine, but it's like too subtle if that makes sense it's one that you really need to appreciate up close and obviously we have great high-res photos that allow us to do that but if you're trying to take in this game whether you're at the ground or watching it on television it's not going to be super obvious that they're wearing you know their indigenous jumpers the cross hatching is a cool nod to aboriginal artwork from multiple strands and mobs in victoria but i would have liked to have seen something that was that stood out a bit more it was a simple design last year with the magpie feathers, but you were able to to notice that a bit more on the oval, I would say. Again, it's not bad. It's just it's just a little too subtle. I like that both of their jumpers the last couple of years have kept like the general stripe pattern and stuff, but I wouldn't be opposed to them going like totally out of the box with like a completely different designs that still maintains like the black and white scheme for future years at number 16 we have the gold coast suns ethan ranked this at number 15 i ranked it at number 17 it was designed in part by jai Farer, one of the sun's current players from the northern territory who does do some art on the side it was done in collaboration with marakia artist trentley and yogambe artist luther chorus so involving artists from both the northern territory and the gold coast region they had this collaboration last year as well between you know northern and queensland art and i like that just out of respect for you know playing these games in darwin and having a con more of a connection to the ground when you play there but in this case the sun's logo seems incongruous with the rest of the design and it feels like it kind of brings down the rest of the design with it yeah i think if you're gonna have the kind of oval shaped gc logo at all it's just got to be like a little patch in the chest area rather than just kind of slapping it on. Also, the, the design, like, mainly based off of a circle, but that circle is not centered, kind of throws me off a bit. 
I think there are some elements to this that are really good, but it needs some fine tuning. Yeah, I, I want to see just like like a sunburst design front and center, maybe incorporating like an aboriginal word for sun in the design. Maybe the, the Laraki and Yogame words for that could be a nice touch. At number 15, we have GWS designed by We're a Jury Woman, Leanne Hunter. And this one is so close to being awesome. I love the design. I love that they have footprints in it, which even though I know it's not really the reason they have them, it kind of is a tribute to the team's name. They say that the footprints reflect the impact of the Giants on Western Sydney. Yeah, I just like the idea of a team called the Giants actually doing a physical representation of a big guy. Kind of like, I mean, how long has it been since the New York Giants had that? Like, they had a logo in the 1950s where it was like, you know, a big guy that's like too big for the stadium to hold throwing a football or sometimes like up against the backdrop of like New York City skyline. But since then, their logos have just been like word marks. So I like it. My one issue and what really brings this one down is that because of the way the pattern goes on the back, it's hard to make out the numbers. And that would probably be the case no matter what color the numbers are, but the pattern on the parts of the uniform that it covers on the back. And the second most important thing for a uniform past being able to recognize what team it is, is being able to see the numbers. So that unfortunately is what holds this one back. Otherwise, I really like it. And I think a similar design to this could be really good. The Giants have had some really strong designs in the past. I'd like that they've kept them brighter, mostly white and orange. It was a predominantly orange design reflecting the rivers of the suburbs of Western City. Yeah, if they if they found a way to to better block things on the back, I would definitely have put this a couple spots up. Ethan, you had it at 16th. I had it at 14th. That was 15th overall. Moving up to number 14, we have the Western Bulldogs jumper designed by the Gundijamara and Yoda Yoda artist Jason Walker. It's got the Kuyong, the eel design incorporated with it, and it mentions how it also pays tribute to a football club with whom a lot of indigenous players had played, including Jamar Eugle Hagen. And I'm all for putting the spotlight on Jamar during these rounds with everything that he's done and also the stand that he took early this season. You know, it's very clearly a Bulldogs jumper, this design from Jason Walker. But I almost wonder if it's perhaps a bit too similar to stand out. I think the use of an eel in the imagery is interesting and it doesn't interfere with the pattern too much. The eel is significant to the Gunditjmara people, but I would love if there's some way they can incorporate a dog. Like, I know obviously the bulldog is, you know, something more associated with England than white people, but you know, something, whether it's a dingo or some other sort of wild dog that could be incorporated, I think would be really cool. By the way, this is a way better design than their class jumper, which again, their white class jumper got downgraded so horribly and it makes me sad and I just like I had to mention that again. At 13, we've got the Adelaide Crows. I put this one at 14th. Benjamin put it at 12th. It was designed by Anmacher woman April Napangardi Campbell, who is the aunt of one of their AFLW players, Danielle Ponter. And Danielle Ponter is actually part of the larger uh, Rioli Long family as well. She is the niece of Michael Long and Cyril Rioli. I love the backstory behind this one because. It kind of allowed Ponter and her aunt to connect in person since that really hadn't happened before. No, Ponter's grandfather had been forcibly removed from traditional lands at age two as part of the the Stolen Generations. And so Campbell and Ponter were able to connect through this art. And the symmetrical design is really based on connection and unity. And I found that really touching. From an aesthetic standpoint, though, I, I just keep thinking back to the Pat Caruso design from the year prior and how brilliantly that used the, the full body crow. And that's what brings it down for me. It's just like visually, it doesn't have what last year's jumper had going for it. There is a lack of bird elements. They did not follow the Portlandia policy of put a bird on it. Like I think back to last year's and how badass it looked for some reason it reminded me like the Egyptian God cards from Yu-Gi-Oh. If anyone else played that game or watched the show. I mean, I feel like there were very few people that watched the show that didn't play the game, but I don't know. Anyway, it's fine. Like, visually, it's cool. It's just there's really no 
bird anything. And that is a bit disappointing. In that case, you know, it brings down the ability to recognize it as easily as a crow's jumper, even though, you know, the color palette does remain unique, having all three of the primary colors in there. At number 12, we have Richmond's Sir Doc Nichols Brown jumper, the yellow jumper. I'm thrilled that Xavier Clark went that direction. So Xavier Clark and his family belong to a few different mobs, including the, the Larakia people. Clark is one of Richmond's assistants. And I like that the design is centered around embellishing the darker colored sash. It is very clear that, that it is, you know, meant to be a Richmond Clash jumper. And I'm glad that the Clash was done so well this year because that's been a problem in the past for Dreamtime at the G. And, you know, playing port the next week as well, although I'm sure a white design or any other color of ports would also have been really nice. I mean, Port versus Richmond in Adelaide is one of the great jumper clashes in the AFL. I like this one. Don't get me wrong. I like just about all of them. But the lack of any sort of representation of a large feline is the one thing that I wish this had. Or, or maybe maybe even like some sort of paw prints of some of some sort, if that was, if uh, someone's totem could have been implemented that way or if it could have been part of a pathway. I know we're spitballing here, but I, I appreciate, you know, th- this very clearly. This is Richmond still. Yeah, it's just, I would love to have some actual tiger imagery or iconography. At number 11, we both put this one at number 11. It's North Melbourne, designed by Wemba Wemba Gunditjmara Najanji and Tongarung artist Emma Bamblett. I really loved that this one had the totems for three indigenous players, Jai Simpkin, Phoenix Spicer, and even though it was asymmetrical, I think it did it they did it quite well. You know, having the representation of the oval as well as paths of players to the oval. And having those paths in that really in the the really vibrant blues kind of helped it vaguely echo the normal North Jumper design with the royal blue and white stripes. So I could tell right away, you know, this is meant to be a North jumper. And I really appreciated that part of it. Even without like the typical striping pattern, it was still unquestionably North Melbourne. I wonder if this is brought down in our eyes also again because of how much we enjoyed last year's jumper for them. Yeah, that's another one that like if you want to just keep it, I wouldn't have been opposed. By the way, like I had said, from about this point on, really North's from North's on up, like, I think these top 11 are all really good. I don't know if you have like, a cutoff point of, of like different tiers of these or anything, but that's kind of where I kind of saw that cutoff. I mean, my first cutoff might be around, you know, 14 or so. So above the Bulldogs and, and Giants. And then I think maybe like the top five or six are in a tier of their, their own for me. And we did agree on what our top six are. We had them in a slightly different order from parts of it, but our top six are the same six. We also had the same at number 10. We both put St. Kilda there. It was designed by Noongar artist Jade Kennedy. It changes their typical color scheme, replacing the white with yellow because it pays tribute to the aboriginal flag. Well, partially, that's part of the story. I learned a bit more about what else it pays tribute to. Yes, the aboriginal flag is a clear tribute there, and that was mentioned, but also... From 1950 to 22, the Saints wore red, yellow, and black instead of red, white, and black. They ditched white to avoid playing in the colors of the German Empire, and so decided to go Belgian instead because they were on the right side of the war. Even though it's kind of the colors Germany uses now, but, you know, back then, back in 1952, because the Kaiser stole our word for 20. Yes, thank you. Um, I do want to know, did the players also tie onions to their belt? I don't know if that was the style at the time in Australia. That's the thing there. But yeah, despite changing the color scheme and despite it having a little bit of a clash against Hawthorne, still having the the red and black stripes made it clear that this was still a Saints jumper. And it was a cool dive back into their history as well. That's what I appreciated so much out of this one. I thought there were times like when you had like a Saints and Hawks player each kind of facing you. It was a little tough to tell. And I maybe would have liked to see a change there, maybe more brown elements and Hawthorns, but it was still a very good looking game. And I love the little fact out of that that I had no idea about. You know, maybe they'll do it again someday because Belgium doesn't seem to be as messed up as Yemen, which is kind of the 
flag they currently are pretty similar to. I hadn't even been thinking about that. Uh, I guess so. I mean, like, you know, the Bulldogs have the Dutch flag, St. George Deal. You got, like, basically Romanian flags for the Crows. Actually, you know what would make sense for the Crows, now that I think about it, would be Moldova, because that also has a bird in the middle. I think it's an eagle, but nonetheless. All right, now we need a Moldovan crow. Let's find a footy prodigy in the former Soviet Republic. At number nine, Ethan had this ranked at eighth. I had it at ninth, is Michelle Searle's design for Geelong. Michelle is an Awabakal woman. And you see a recurring element from past Geelong indigenous jumpers in waves kind of functioning as the hoops. And they're a bit thin on this one, but it's still distinctively Geelong. And I appreciate that Michelle Searle made two versions of it, a light and a dark. Yeah, that was important because playing against Frio and GWS with GWS being predominantly white, you definitely needed to have a dark one. And it was nice to see him wear both. This is what the one that I liken most to like the Indonesian batik design. And it's just a shame the team didn't play better at it because I think they look great. No complaints there other than the fact that they couldn't pick up a win at them exactly. Up at number eight, we've got Carlton. I put this at ninth. Benjamin put it at seventh. This one was designed by Tiwi woman, Russellina. I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Purantata Mary or Russie as she's known. Also, every player had individualized boots designed by an artist named Kiralee Costello. I like this one because even though it deviates from their traditional shade of blue with kind of dark and light blues, it's still very clearly Carlton. And some of the patterns on it are really unique. And frankly, I'd love to see them incorporate more colors because like their normal uniforms are really boring. Yeah, this follows in the vein of what we've seen from the Blues in the past for their Sir Doug Nichols Rounds jumper. I think this this might be a little bit more vibrant compared to last year's, but I want to see something different for next year. I want to see, I don't know, maybe incorporate a little orange like you have for like you have as that trim color for the Carlton Respects Night. Something like that. Spice it up a little bit. Maybe have two versions or something. I mean, they are kind of boxed in with a limited color scheme. They and Collinwood are in that boat, but the sky's the limit when it comes to actual design possibilities, you know, what elements to add. I liked Carlton's more than Brisbane's. I had Brisbane at number eight. Ethan had it at seven in our aggregate. It's ranked seventh overall. And Brisbane's was designed by two premiership players, Des Headland from the 2002 side and Ash McGraw from 2003. Now, Ash McGraw, that's a name that uh, Cats fans might not like to hear because of... I just don't like that people pronounce it McGraw when it's clearly McGrath. I've had this discussion when referring to Andrew McGrath. This one is kind of just like an enhanced version of their gold class jumper in a lot of ways, because you still have the lion logo in the middle. They had two versions of this one as well. They had the maroon standard jumper as well as the gold clash. I think I like the maroon one a little better. But yeah, this is a case where, you know, you're building off a design that has a decent amount of space in it, and you're maximizing that space kind of on the bottom part of the jumper leading toward the waist and on the sides of it. You don't see many standard jumpers with designs heading toward the sides, unless you got like sort of those wing panels like the West Coast Eagles have. So I'm in favor of what Brisbane's doing on that front. They took advantage of every inch of space on this one because there's a lot going on. Which, I guess if you wanted to nitpick, it could be a little too noisy, a little too crowded, but I really liked it. Yeah, and it's all about unity and multiple pathways coming together between Headland and McGraw's stories, and also Fitzroy, the Brisbane Bears, coming together to become the Lions in 1997. And still at the same time, you can clearly tell the difference between these jumpers and their regular ones. My one little thing about this one... Like, the pattern around the waist on the maroon one, like, it kind of looks every time someone got tackled like their hands were being pulled down. <laughs> At number six, we've got the same one. It's Fremantle, or Wallyallop, as they were known during the Indigenous rounds. This was designed by Captain Alex Pierce and his friend Carly Gray, who are both, you know, they're both from Palawa country in Tasmania. I thought the away version of this that they wore against Melbourne or Narm was even better. Just like last year when uh, Sonny Walter's white clash jumper looked better, in my opinion. You've got 
you still maintain like the, you know, the three V's towards the top, but all with a bunch of designs in them that included Eula birds. And I thought this one just like, you could tell this is very clearly 3.0. It still maintains a lot of the elements of the regular design, but kind of goes off on its own path. And there's a lot of creativity here. I, I love how this turned out. I really appreciate this. It's busy for a free jumper. You know, there's a lot of space below the Vs and that space is filled up, but in a really artful way. And I love the incorporation of Alex Pierce's story as well, with it being his first year as captain and also with him having improved in form leading up to this game as well. I thought, you know, this is a great tribute to someone who's given a lot of service to the club. And, you know, now he's at the helm of the playing group. I'm yeah, a big fan of we're up to the top five now. We disagree on placements three through five in terms of which of them fall where, but it's the same three for each of us. So in the aggregate, number five is Essendiz, which was designed by a couple primary school students at Thornbury Primary School in the Darebin area. Students Jackie Sinclair and Moa Wilcox made this design around Wa the Crow using the crow as the red sash on this charcoal gray jumper. Between the crow providing the shape of the sash and a return to the gray jumper for the first time since a clash they had in the mid to late 2010s. It combines, you know, the distinction of an Essendon jumper, that being the sash, with it still being distinctive from the regular black jumper. So this this kind of bridges those two criteria for me. And I just think this is brilliant. And the primary school students did this makes it all the more remarkable. I love the incorporation of that, you know, of... It's ironic that they're, you know, they have a crow in theirs and Adelaide doesn't, but to have it in kind of like a similar shape to the plane in their regular logo was really cool. Everything about this makes it a really special design. And the fact that it was also worn in a game where they broke through it and stopped a streak against Richmond might just elevate this jumper even further in Essendon supporters' eyes. See, I try not to associate any of how uniforms look with how the team plays but like oh i i I didn't either i want to make that clear but a lot of the most popular throwback uniforms for pretty much any team are the ones they wore when the team was good except for like the creamsicle tampa bay buccaneers i tried not to go down that path i just want them to look good i don't care if it's from when the team was good or not of course i mean point is you know i think this jumper could be etched into a lot of essendon fans minds because of the game in which it was worn and I like that, like, the sort of charcoal gray, like, it was not too far off from their typical scheme. It kept the basic principles of their normal jumper with some really nice subtleties. At number four, we've got the West Coast Eagles, designed by AFLW player Crystal Petrevsky, a Kija and Jaru woman. She is the cousin of Sam Petrevsky. I love the full-body eagle design. I have this one at third. Benjamin has it at fifth. But, like, I would use this as inspiration to design new jumpers for them altogether. Like, I love the use of the full-body eagle. Oh, I'd, I've been waiting for this ever since I saw West Coast Eagles jumpers for the first time. I mean, they they had some attempts with kind of this profile of a full-body eagle before the side view of it, but seeing the fully spread wings, this is a really special design, and I'm glad they finally went with something new and I don't know, maybe, I, maybe I'd bring it down a little bit because I find it a little bit too busy surrounding the main design and I'd want, you know, a little bit more dimension in the bird design itself. It's It does appear to me, you know, a little flat, whereas the eagle head logo is quite dynamic, but they can use elements from this design and make a really special jumper that, you know, could go down at, as something that could be worn full-time. I'd love to see you uh, kind of jump off of this, Ethan, and draw some sort of concept. Maybe we could work on something in that regard. I just think there's so much potential to do even more with this, and I loved how it came out in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I my initial reaction was like a combination of thank you and oh my gosh. I may end up getting one of these jumpers. I would want to get like a, like a Liam Ryan jumper. Unfortunately, he hasn't been able to wear this in a game. For that reason alone... I would want him to to keep it for next year. Yeah, a rehash here would not be a problem. I wouldn't have a problem with any of these top five being rehashed. At number three, we've got Narm or Melbourne, 
designed by Neil Neil sand artist Lowell Hunter. What I loved about this one was that because they were playing against Port Adelaide or Yarn Pulte, they had a version with a light blue, not like the royal blue they have on their typical class jumper, a bit lighter. Light. And then kind of the, the sand art motifs were in the standard dark blue. And this is the first time that I remember Narm's indigenous jumper building off their traditional design. And it works while also still being distinctive because those those sand art elements are very visible. They're very central. I think designing theirs, you're also working with an extra obstacle because I don't know if like a demon is something that's depicted in a lot of indigenous cultures or if, you know, some of these languages even have a word for it. Because, you know, like if there's something you don't encounter, you might not have a word for something like a lot of languages in warmer climates probably don't have a word for snow, whereas you know, some Inuit languages have you know, supposedly up to like 40 words for snow. You know, thinking about other jumper designs that they've had, they've had that sort of blossom design that we loved in 2021, the the eagle and the stars with the with the gradient last year. I like that they're willing to do something different with their designs every year and really go out of the box and, and say, you know, the colors will speak for themselves. We agreed on number two and number one. And at number two, it's Yana Pulte, Port Adelaide, designed by Peter Burgoyne, 2004 Premiership player, brother of Sean and father of current Port player Jace. Peter Burgoyne designed this in conjunction with artist Laz Guide. I did not think Port would be able to incorporate their modern V design into one of their jumpers for the indigenous route so well, but they nailed it with this eagle design. I thought this was tremendous. It maintained their traditional design template. And I mean, power is a tough thing to represent. And doing this with an eagle, you know, a bird that kind of represents power in a lot of ways. I think this came out so well. Also, the eagle being etched in white on a black jumper means that it still stands out from further away. You can see the contrast between this jumper that we're going and guide design you can tell you know this is not their regular home jumper and there's also the the feathers from the eagle are incorporated into the numbers on the back as well you don't usually see the design going as far as to affecting the numbers and so that was a really nice touch as well i love that we saw it our number two ranked jumper play against both number three and number one that latter meeting happening this past round to mark the end of reconciliation week number one we have Hawthorne, designed by Yorta Yorderman, Jarman Impey, and Wagaman artist Nathan Patterson. The full-body hawk design is phenomenal. You can't beat that. Maybe you could have thrown in some more brown for when they played against St. Kilda, but I just love the way this looked. Incorporating my favorites typically are the ones that incorporate like a new version of the team's typical logo, and they did that here. It's so cool. You can see the inspiration from the main Hawk crest in this jumper, and you've got enough white detailing that it stands out even on the gold jumper. The feet and the talons really stand out. Everything just kind of jumps off of this Guernsey, and there's elegance, there's there's power in it. It's a gold jumper done right. I think this is the best brightly colored jumper that I've seen at this point at the AFL level. I also love the touch. I know this isn't, you know, a design element, but also the Tasmania um, ad is in uh, one of the indigenous language saying Lutruita instead. They went full out on this in every way. And they even had the full body eagle on the oval facing side of their banners in the round as well. They're probably not going to win the Hardly Reach sweepstakes. They're not going to make finals, but Hawthorne, you won this. Also, their VFL and VFL women's design is also great for Box Hill. If if you haven't checked out that one, I think they, they sweep it between the top level and the reserves for those jumper designs. I get that, you know, I hope that nobody finds this ranking to be you know, contentious for the wrong reasons. Again, I remind you, this is aesthetic. I'm glad we're taking time at this to celebrate the artists and the stories that they're telling while, while also, you know, just giving our thoughts on, on the jumpers because we value the aesthetics in sport. We love looking at these jumper clashes and, you know, these 
Guernseys, whether they're once or for multiple years, are indelibly tied to the club, the players who wear them. Also, just when you don't have a lot of new uniforms each year, it's like, I want to obsess over something like this, and these are the ones that we get to. And as I said before, unlike, you know, special event jerseys in American sports, these actually look good almost every time. That's going to do it for this episode, then. We hope you enjoyed the progress reports in the first half and these jumper rankings after. So you'll catch us again, maybe as soon as tomorrow or maybe just right after, depending on when you're listening to this, for our round 13 preview. Eight games spread out over five days and no overlaps for the first time. I've got some fun twists planned for that preview, which will be episode number 106. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter and YouTube at American Study. You find Brian Harambe on Instagram at CatNapeBrian. You can find me at Castle Media. You can find me at BenjaminHK01. I'm not going to try to find you because that would be really creepy. And I don't want to get in trouble. 